right, riddle me this, Kev. What's one of the first upgrades you should do to your vehicle? What is it? What do you go for? Well, you might think power, but ultimately, from a smart and safe perspective, definitely the brakes. Yeah, no doubt. Upgraded braking systems can really transform a vehicle's performance and honestly give you better peace of mind behind the wheel in any situation. You know, from the track to off-road trails, even the morning commute, every single vehicle deserves performance brakes at an affordable price. And no matter what your vehicle or driving style, PowerStop has complete brake upgrade kits for you. So head to PowerStop.com, fill in your vehicle's information into their easy-to-use brake finder to be matched with complete kits and components that are low-dust, noise-free, and feature upgraded stopping power. That's right. You could join the thousands of other drivers that have already transformed their vehicle into a stopping powerhouse today with PowerStop. PowerStop.com, brake upgrades made easy. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Two Guys Garage Podcast, a production of iHeartRadio and Britain Productions. It's Two Guys Garage Podcast. He is Kevin Bird. I'm Willie B. Appreciate your all's time. Today, it's all about dry sump oil systems. Now, trust me, this, this seems, well, not as sexy as what it really is, Kevin. A lot of people think dry sump, wet sump, I don't know. That's not very sexy. I'm like, oh, on the contraire, <laughs> my friend. It really doesn't get sexier than that. I will back you up 100% on that one. <laughs> There's nothing like getting lubed up, you know? Yeah, exactly. I'm glad you said that, not me. <laughs> they would take it a different way if I said it. So, you know, people don't realize not only what the, you know, what the benefits of a dry sump system can be, but they don't realize how much power you can get out of it because of what happens on a wet sump system. And hell, we should probably dive in that and maybe educate some people because, you know, you get a lot of a lot of benefits to go into a, a dry sump system. You know, they're actually created to just give a more consistent oil pressure throughout RPM ranges. What happens when your, you know, your oil is hot, you're stopping in a, at a stoplight? What happens to your oil pressure? You know, there's guys that call me up all the time on the radio show and be like, man, my oil pressure is like, four <laughs> six <laughs> is that bad i'm like yeah well first that's bad to <laughs> be uh you know you, you should look into a a dry sump system for a lot of these reasons one of the reasons they were you know created as, as well as increasing oil capacity which makes it better makes the wear and longevity better you know there's a lot of big benefits by going to a dry sump system i think a lot of people don't necessarily maybe understand them or maybe they they feel a little bit intimidated by them, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, I think most people have heard of a dry sump. Probably much yeah. smaller subset really know what a dry sump is. And even smaller subset have ever worked around one and have a good working knowledge. So today is all about understanding, you know, your, your standard wet sump and a dry sump and all the benefits and what to avoid. And I tell you, we got John Swartz on from Aviate. I mean, this guy is the president. He's been around this stuff for for years and years and years, and he's going to school us and you on what to do and what not to do, you know? And Yeah, man. I'm curious as to what got him in that, you know? Because 
dry sump systems have been around for a long time, but there had to be a, a story where he's like me was rolling up a hill and some guys were like, get on that song, bitch, man. Let's see what it's got. And oil moves, you know, in a wet sump system, it can move to the back of the pan away from the pickup. Well, if it does that and you start moving a lot of oil, all of a sudden you don't have any oil and you're starving for it, which is the case in a lot of wet sump systems. You have oil movement. Well, you don't have that. You're not susceptible to that. In a dry sump system, there's got to be a story. There's got to be something that made him go, I'm going to look into these dry sump systems because that's just the way to go. I'm not spinning any bearings anymore, you know? All you got to do is pop one motor, right? And yeah. you're a dry sump guy. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And if you're really smart, you become, right, president of a dry sump company and sell it to guys like us that don't want to pop their motor, right? Exactly. Now, if you think about it, exactly, right? This is coming from a guy doing either drag racing or hill climbing because all the oil in Willie's mind is going to the back of the pan. Yes. But all you guys that are braking hard and it's going to the front or you're cornering hard and it's going it's to the side, side yeah. is pretty much going everywhere. And you think about, you know, hold, hold a pan of water, you know, in your lap and go racing. And tell me where that water goes, right? That's your sump, <laughs> and that's the oil, and it's just sloshing everywhere, right? Uh, yeah, clearly it won't spill out the edges, but it's, one, it's sloshing up into the crank. It's getting hammered by the throws on the crank and the rods and everything else that's spinning in there. But two, it's going away from the pickup tube. So now you're sucking air, and I mean a split second of sucking air, and your motor's done, right? Yeah. So, there's the beginnings of it. And I tell you what, why don't we get a little bit deeper right after the break with John, president of Aviate Dry Sump Systems, man, to give us all the ins and outs, how it works, and all the details. So, uh, yeah, let's take a break and come right back with Mr. Schwartz. All right, we'll do that. And you, it's funny because you mentioned it in a way where I've done a contest where guys get a, a shotgun rider in an autocross with a big bowl of soup with peas in it. And whoever comes out the autocross without the most wearing the most soup wins. It's combined between time and how much soup you lose out of the big bowl. That's a perfect commercial for why you need to dry something. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, <laughs> quick break and we'll get back to it. It's the Two Guys Garage podcast with Kevin Bird and Willie B. It's the Two Guys Garage Podcast. He is Kevin Bird. I am Willie B. We have John Schwartz, president of Aviate Dry Sump Systems. And I, I, John, I, let me just ask the first question is, what was it, my friend? What caused you uh, to just migrate over to, to dry sumps? There had to be, I don't know, an engine blow, a spun bearing. Was there any you know devil in disguise that caused you to, I don't know, seek this as a career? No, when I, you know, when I got my first race car. Uh, it had a wet sump system on it, but all these years I've been reading about all the dry sump systems that people have been using and how basically it eliminates having to watch your oil pressure gauge, figuratively, of right. course. And, you know, I figured as much money as I had in the car, in the engine, let alone the cost of going to a racetrack with all your friends and disappointing them because, you know, you lost pressure in a, you know, in a corner. I said, you know, this is pretty stupid. I'm going to convert to a dry sump. Of course, the first time, I, the second time I went out with my car after I got rid of the wet sump is I went out with a dry sump and it didn't work. So I discovered early on you could do it wrong. So the third time I went out, it finally worked. So, <laughs> you know, 30 years later, here we are. Right? <laughs> uh, that's oh. funny. The third time. I, I know, third time's a charm, John. Third time is a charm. It worked. So, yeah, man. 
So really, was it a performance thing for you? You saw that that was a great way to find performance in the industry and and figure out ways to you know gain power. A lot of people don't quite necessarily understand what goes on in that oil and that froth and that viscous sort of you know what is kind of rolling through. A lot of people don't realize when that crank that crankshaft is churning. You know, at low RPMs, it's just knocking through the oil and the froth and whatever. But you get up to high RPMs at a wet sump, and, and all of a sudden, man, you're you're robbing yourself of, of a lot of power. No, it's true. But, you know, I mean, to go back to it, the only thing I had thought about, and this was before, before people really started realizing what you could do with one, is I just didn't want to have to worry about oil pressure. Once I got off, through worrying about oil pressure, then you start learning about all the other stuff. And exactly like you talked about, you know, got to know other racers are doing different forms of racing, circle track, marine, uh, road racing, drag racing, started listening to their problems and their issues. And you come to realize pretty soon that, you know, one, they all needed to solve their oil pressure issue. But a lot of them, especially you got into the professional engine builders that were doing a lot of development work on, on developing horsepower to engines discovered that, you know, if you kept the oil from rising up in the back of the oil pan into the reciprocating assembly, like on a small block Chevy running a short track, it could be 35, 40 horsepower just from the crank having to wind its way through that oil. And what's it doing while it's winding its way through that oil? It's kicking that oil up. It's atomizing it. It's heating the daylights out of it. And it's keeping it from getting back to the pan where you need it to be. Well, if you've ever been a kid in a boat, like, you know, cruising <laughs> down the lake or the river and you put your hand in the water while you're going fast, I mean, pff, your hand gets smacked back. Like, think about trying to churn all those rods and crank, you know, counterweights and stuff through oil. And like I said, it's it's sloshing everywhere, depending on what you're doing. Uh, so like I said, I mean, just the energy loss, the heat buildup, and then the other thing that's really important is aeration right so you you put all this yep. oil in a blender uh let alone it's already through you know all the bearings and stuff and it's being aerated and sheared and whatnot now you're churning it in the pan as well so you can have aeration numbers in the 10 20 percent maybe even higher so now you have aeration what's that air bubbles in your oil so you take and you suck that aerated oil and you pump it into your mains and your rods and everything else and as soon as it starts to see that pressure right? The air collapses. And now you, you don't have the oil that you thought you had in there. So just the aeration alone can fry bearings. Well, it's, you know, it's lots of different things. And unfortunately, most of the time, by the time you end up picking the pieces up off the track, you don't know which, you can't figure out which one it was. But oil aeration is a big issue, especially on sustained, you know, sustained endurance type of events. I mean, a quarter mile pass, you know, chances are you may not even get through a whole tank of oil before the thing's over. But you get off and off, you know, like you were talking about in a boat, you know, where there is no direction of travel. It's direction of travels forward, backwards, left and right and up and down. Oil's everywhere inside the engine. And again, if it's sitting up there inside the reciprocating assembly, it's getting beat to death. It's getting heated. It's getting air pounded into it, and it's being kept from getting back to the bottom of the pan where you need to have it. So each one has a different piece of the puzzle, and each one yields you back so much power. So, you know. Yeah. Right? There's there's another piece of that power point, and uh, 
people don't think about, they think about the air on top of the piston. You suck in a big cylinder worth of air, you squeeze it, you blow it, you pop it out. Well, you got just as much air under the bottom side of the piston. So when that piston comes down, all that air is being pushed down into the pan. So that's that's huffing and puffing and splashing oil. Well, that's got to go to the opposite piston that's going up, right? So the air is going down and up and down and up and down inside that engine. And it's got to go from front to back and front to back. And a lot of that oil sloshing around gets in the way. So it's called bay-to-bay breathing, you know, between bulkheads. So you're losing a lot of pumping work uh, just from air trying to move around, you know, especially if you're topping off your oil to the top. So when you're going in G's, right? You don't lose it on the pickup. You know, most racers are trying to get it all the way as high up on the stick as they can, right? So you're losing more power there as well. Now, for most people that have never seen, right, one of these systems or how it works, like your base engine, most of us are familiar, right? You got a pan, oil sitting in there, you got a pickup tube, and you got typically one pump. Maybe it's a vane type, it's your rotor type, uh, gear type, and, you know, that pump has a suction you know, it sucks it up to the pump and then it builds the pressure, pushes it through your engine, right? Now, on a dry sump, typically what you're doing, instead of that big tank of oil sitting underneath the bottom of your engine, you might have one or two or three or four, call them scavenge pumps. Now, those are just pulling the oil out of your engine and putting it in a nice little tank off to the side, right? And in that tank, you got time. You, you can put a ton of oil in it. You're not limited you know, as big a tank as you can fit somewhere, the aeration can come out, PCV gases can come out, right? Now you just have that kind of one stage pressure pushing it back into the engine, nice and clean, you know, whatever temperature, maybe you've cooled it down to, et cetera. And, you know, ideally with very little aeration. Yeah, because yeah. it could cool in that tank too. Yeah, oh, you're right about that. So, yeah. So John, tell us like these stages, right? You got scavenges. So Right. Typically, we have one pump. Now we got all these scavenge pumps pulling it out. Now, you know, one scavenge might be enough to pull all the oil out and get it out of your way. But now we start to add more scavenge pumps. So, what do you start to gain, and what do you need to be careful, like sucking seals in, etc., as you start, you know, increasing those scavenge pumps? Well, the first thing you're doing is you're trying to make sure that you're covering all the spots in the engine where oil tends to accumulate because the whole purpose of them is to get it out of the out of the engine into the tank. So typically a regular old dry sump pan has a pickup in the front and a pickup in the back. That'll cover 95% of the, you know, of your motion in most vehicles. So then you run into some other issues like you know, a Chrysler Hemi that holds 27 quarts of oil up in its valve covers and has the 516 drain back holes in the back of the cylinder head that are sitting there waiting for all that air that's being pumped into the crankcase to come up before it goes back down. So uh, you start adding things like, you know, valley scavenge, cylinder head scavenge. Got a turbocharger sitting under the rear bumper of your Corvette? We add a turbocharger scavenge. So again, what we're doing is we're analyzing where oil goes in the engine and then trying to put a scavenge pickup in those particular locations. The idea, let's get it out, let's get it to the tank. I detect a slight amount of sarcasm 
on the part of John when it comes to the <laughs> Hemi. Uh, the, the, the baddest engine they ever created. Just a slight, I detected a slight amount of sarcasm there. Uh, but, but he is, he is true because those engines hold so much oil up there. It has drain back. Drain back is an issue that a lot of people, you know, kind of are unaware of as well. The whole oiling system is so intricate and so critical. Uh, and really, a lot of these problems, I, I feel like some of these moving parts and pieces are the intimidating factor about a dry sump system and why some people tend to be a little cautious in in the purchase of one or getting one because like you said things can go wrong hence why john got it right on his third try but maybe you know we got to take a break here but maybe when we come back you could tell us how you and your team at, at aviate has has really attacked that and made dry sump systems applicable simple and a little more common for us racers, whether it's autocross, turn road, open road course, or drag racers to have on our platforms and our systems. Because I, I think a lot of people may be kind of shocked to find out how simple you kind of made them and how you could buy the entire system now. Okay. All right, so a quick break, and we'll dive right back into it. It's the Two Guys Garage Podcast. Kevin Bird, Willie B, back after the break. It's the Two Guys Garage Podcast. He is Kevin Bird. I am Willie B, and we have John Schwartz, who is the president of AVA Dry Sump Systems. If you want to check out their website, ava.com is the best way to do it, A-V-I-A-I-D. And, you know, John, looking on your website, man, good God, you guys have an amazing amount of SKUs. You guys create dry sumps for just about everything in there. The leader in motorsports lubrication systems since 1961. I'm reading it right off the website Tell us a little bit about, you know, how you kind of created this this move and, and what you've done to really address some of these symptoms and issues that people may find intimidating when it comes to some of the dry sump setups. Well, first, you got to remember, dry sump system is really basically nothing other than a remote oil tank. And instead of the oil sitting underneath the engine in the pan, what we're doing is we're taking it and we're putting it in a remote canister where we can add more oil and we can do all kinds of great things. The only thing we have to do is we have to add a couple little pumps, just like your oil pressure pump, to the system to take the oil out of the engine and pump it back, pump it over the tank. So in its basic form of standard three-stage dry sump system with two pickups and one pressure section, is certainly a better deal than the first time you stick the rods out through the side of the block and knock the starter off. <laughs> uh, and yet, you know, there, there's yeah. a lot of parts to it, but it's if you contemplate about what it is you're trying to do, it's no more complex than just about anything else most people are trying to do with their engines. So we've always been sold on the fact that, you know, the absolute, you know, most basic standard dry sump system is better than is absolutely pants down better than the most absolute shot from a gun high dollar wazoo wet sump system you could ever put on the car so you know you start with just having right. a consistent oil supply you start with you know as people are want to do modifying cars requiring more oil pressure than the stock system can give it a lot of these late model engines all run you know a, you know basically a g-rotor oil pump off the cranks now Everybody forgets the old pumps on the Chevys and Fords and Chryslers and everything else always ran off to the distributor shaft at half engine speed. 
So when you start taking yeah. that Corvette over 7,000 RPM, you're pumping way more oil in, into the engine than you are oil, way more air into the engine. And you are oil because the innards of the pump are moving way too fast to properly allow the oil to flow into the cavities and get pressurized into the engine. So what with an external pump we're able to do is drive it at a ratio that brings the oil pump back into a normalized operating range. You know, so you've got the addition of a drive for the system. You've got the addition of a couple of pumps and some hoses. But fundamentally, if you think at it, at it about it as its most basic, it's just a pump pushing oil to the tank and a pump pushing, taking the oil out of the tank and pressurizing the engine. We've just put a little distance between the two. So when, when somebody gets a setup from you, like a kit, right, they're typically going to get, you know, a dry sump pan, so it's got the fittings. You know, it's typically very shallow because you don't need a big sump anymore. You get more clearance to cross members and ground and things like that. Uh, you know, it's got a couple of hoses typically that are going to go to this log, and that log could have, right, three or more stages to it. Uh, so really, it's just a pan. You're mounting a log as if you're mounting some kind of accessory, you know, like an alternator or something like that. You're putting a drive belt on it, and then you're routing, you know, to a tank and back. So it it's relatively simple. Now, what do people usually go wrong when they go do dry sumps? Um, you know, where are the mistake points? Because, you know, clearly in an engine, right, typically I'm going to throw some rough numbers. At hot idle, you know, you want somewhere around 10 PSI-ish plus, you know, and then for every 1,000 RPM, you know, the crank is spinning faster, so your pump is spinning faster. You typically have another 10 PSI per 1,000 RPM, right? So if you watch your you know, oil pressure gauge, you know, you're 60, 70 at higher RPMs or somewhere 80. Um, you know, so you've got to get that initial pressure set up right. And you can do it probably with more than one avenue, whether it's the ratio of the drive or some springs, that sort of thing. Or, or is this already set for most of your kits so people don't have to think about it? How do they get in there and tune it? Or how do they get in there and not mess it up? Well, one, I mean, you know, we've done enough over the years that we have a decent idea of how much oil is each particular engine requires. And if you actually were to set it up on a test bench and put flow oil flow meters on it and uh, instrument it, you'd see that there's actually an oil consumption curve to most engines. You know, you get small four-cylinder engines that'll run three, four gallons per minute, you know, at RPM. You know, we only really talk about settings when we get into RPM on operating temperature. Then you'll get small standard LS or small block Chevys running about five or six gallons a minute. Then you get into most big blocks, but you know, whether it be Chrysler's or Ford's or Chevrolet's, and they'll run typically eight or nine gallons a minute. And then you get into big inch aluminum blocks where we're starting to talk about 12, 14, 16 gallons a minute. Or you get into your basic pulling tractor that put a 40 gallon per minute pump on 40 gallons a minute yeah. <laughs> that's a lot Jesus. of oil moving around basic there. fire hose land so, uh, yeah you know, but we, yeah. we have there's we have seven different sizes of pressure sections so we can pretty much stagger the different parts to suit the particular installation of the application if it's aluminum block we might go a little bigger if you got turbochargers on it we go a little bigger, iron block, iron cylinder heads, you know, flat tap and can, go a little smaller. Um, a lot of that depends on the guy that built the engine and 
you know, and letting him do his job and him knowing and understanding what he kind of needs. We can support, certainly apply, supply a lot of background information regarding our experience, but you'd be surprised how many different directions people go in sometimes, you know, that we really never contemplated before. So Curious, I, you you know, you mentioned earlier that you saw 30, 40 horsepower on on some engines. What What's the most you've ever seen converted over from a wet sump to a dry sump, and what was it, if you could recall? Just out of curious from... Oh, straight. Yeah. Well, straightforward for, like I say, the, the small block Chevy's circle track car. Uh, you talk to the drivers, they can actually feel the car slow down when, you know, you know, and you're with, you know, when you're getting the oil in the wrong place. So that's fairly typical if you're so uncontrolled in the pan that oil is literally washing up into the reciprocating assembly. Uh, typically losses from, you know, and what we're really talking about in all of these cases is recovering parasitic horsepower losses. The power that's lost and the engine just kind of operating uh, with all that oil flying around in there and stuff. Um, you know, uh, it's not uncommon if you don't have oil running into everything to see 8, 10, 12 horsepower, say, on a, on a five liter engine. And then you get into the extremes of it all, where you go to the other end of the scale where people are running, at, you know, really high RPM, big inch engines. You're talking about working in a different realm there where that has to do with piston ring sealing and things like that, where 40, 50, 60 horsepower is not unusual. But, you know, this is not something that the average person is really looking to get. And that's probably the biggest thing that people where they go wrong is thinking that somehow this is going to solve all your power problems. I mean, you know, what we're really basically trying to do is give you good consistent lubrication. And then as we start stepping up the scale, we can get into a lot of this other stuff, but we're going to contain the oil. We're going to control it. We're going to make sure it does what it needs to do. And what about engine temps? Cause I know one of the, you know, sort of unarticulated uh, deals about oil is, is its cooling properties. I imagine if you're running a dry sump system, the car naturally has to run a little cooler. So how, how, how many degrees or variables have you seen in engine drops in, in temp? Well, relative to a bad system, you know, I mean, it's not unlikely to see 10, 15, 20 degrees oil temperature drops. Wow. So it's... You know, you think about it, you know, a rod, you know, rod throw comes around, little drop of oil sitting in there, it's hitting that thing at 200 miles an hour. Doesn't seem like a big deal, but there is mass to the oil. And what that rod throw or crank throw does is it takes it, it's, it basically atomizes it. And in that process, you're generating heat because you're taking that out and you're, you know, you're making it do stuff. So you're moving it, you're splitting it up and stuff like that. So getting the oil out of the crankcase, keeping it away from the reciprocating assembly, it spins more freely. And, you know, and the interesting thing is where, you know, the thing that most people start thinking about if they read enough articles, whether it's in the Internet or the magazines, is, you know, the concept of crankcase vacuum. And, you know, at a very basic level, you know, we're generating crankcase, crankcase vacuum anyway because, these are all suction pumps, whether we're sucking oil out of the tank or sucking oil out of the pan. 
And 80% of what we move, especially in the scavenge sections, is usually air because the capacity of the of the of the gear section or the rotor section is usually far more than the amount of oil that's in the engine. I mean, usually the rule of thumb is you want twice as much scavenge as you have pressure. And even with a 16 gallon a minute pressure section, you're typically only putting eight or nine or 10 gallons in. So you've got 32 gallons of removal capacity, just getting that, you know, eight or nine gallons out of there. The rest of it's air. You can seal the engine properly and, you know, and you've got the right kind of application. Uh, you can actually start reducing ambient air pressure inside of the engine. So you think of normally you take an engine and you vent it openly to make sure you don't build pressure. In our case, we're going to seal up the engine because our removal capacity exceeds the amount of air being pumped past the piston rings as the engine runs and we can go subs, you know, or subambient. And to the extent that you can lower the amount of air in the crankcase, you know, call it windage for a reason, the less air, the less wind, the less wind, the less windage, you literally start precipitating the oil out of the suspension in the crankcase. And if you get really good at it, then you go to the other end of the spectrum where it's so dry inside of there, you start burning things up. But, you know, that's, you know, that's down the road. For <laughs> people, so. Yeah, I tell you, I've, I've been, you know, fortunate enough. I've seen, you know, videos, uh, you know, through my, my Ford job where, sure. you know, we look inside front covers and oil pans to see where the oil's going, right? Because it is an engineering task to try to get a wet sump, even on a production car with sure. regular street tires, not slicks. <laughs> not, you know, mega G's going around tracks and downforce and all that stuff. And the amount of oil flying around everywhere, downstairs, going upstairs, is unbelievable. Because like you said, just all the blow-by going past the rings is got to go somewhere. It's got to go up the engine and out to the PCV. So it's pushing anything coming down. So all the drain backs where the oil is supposed to go, it's pushing the oil up. Uh, even the chain drive, like typically a lot of like, you know, an LS or Coyote's got a, a G rotor pump right on the front of the crank. Well, that G rotor stack is made out of steel. The housing's made out of aluminum. So what, what happens when it gets hot? The aluminum expands and the clearance gets higher and oil's flying out of the oil pump, not into the engine, but just flying out of clearances. And then the chain drives pick it all up and carry it upstairs. And it is a mess. So the amount of churning everywhere is ungodly so yeah if you can pull that air out pull that crankcase pressure out pull the oil down and out of the way and just let those things spin just spin around be yep. free you know be happy uh 100 percent uh the the power the heat build up all that thing that you talk about john uh you can just strip away now again i mean it's not necessarily like oh i want to make horsepower in a dry sump it's, I want to stop looking at my oil gauge or my oil light because most of us have spent way too much of our lives looking at that one stupid gauge Amen. with, with the anxiety on every hard corner, yeah. right? <laughs> and then you take advantages of some of the performance power things that you can get as well, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, case in, case in point, drag racing. I mean, you know, the, the, it's one of the few areas where we can still legitimately, you know, recommend a wet sump. Simply because we know where all the oil, all the oil's going, so it's all going to the back, you know, back of the engine. So hopefully, <laughs> that's where your sump is. <laughs> you know, so it's recharging that sump on a continuous basis. 
The problem is, of course, the minute you hit the brakes or you come off throttle, all the oil goes in front of the pan, yes. and everybody watches the gauge go to zero. So that's where you know that's where people get a little unnerved, and you know it's not as bad as it really seems, but you know it's not something that's necessary. It's something that we can resolve fairly easily simply by providing a consistent oil supply out of a tank to a pressure pump. And it looks like on your website you have them for small block Chevys, you got it for LSs, you got it for Hemi's, you got them for the old school Hemi, new Hemi's, you got them for mod motors, you got them for big block Fords. Like you have everything underneath the sun that that you're doing dry soap systems for, or at least complete oil system, you know? That's true. We can put it on everything, and these are the mounting blades that we have to do that with. So, you know, our, road, our motto is we've got 40 ways to mount it. Do you have one way to use it? So, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we get into weird, you know, lots of weird, you know, like LS engines, Coyote engines, a lot of them are being used in transplants literally around the world. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, you know, they come up, we, uh, a friend of mine stuck a Coyote in a TVR Vixen. You know, and I mean, it's kind of like, seriously? So we had to come up with, you know, we had to come up with mounting brackets. Then we have a lot of different variations with the housings to kind of redirect the ports so that we run around everything. So uh, it's small block Chevy, small block Ford, all the regular stuff that you normally think of. I'm so happy because we know what to do. <laughs> now I heard, what do you got for your hottest latest? What What's kind of your newest creation you guys are excited about? Well, um, we've been doing, well, <laughs> big inch engines are getting to be a really big thing. It seems that, you know, half the phone calls we get are 600 cubic inch plus engines. So we've been doing a lot of them. Uh, in the cases of a lot of these engines, they're flat pan rail engines. So we've actually been developing a fair number of billet oil pans for these installations. You know, so we just finished our Chrysler Hemi, you know, oil pan for Hemi or Wedge. We've got billets for the LS, for the Coyote. That's kind of interesting because people always like billet because you can polish it and it shines really pretty. But it also functions correctly. And the key to it is as shallow an oil pan as we can make so that people can transplant them into whether, you know, whatever you want, whether it's a twin turbocharged 572 Chrysler into a 57 Cadillac. <laughs> You know, riding on an Art Morrison frame or just taking a K-Series Honda and stuck in, sticking it in a mini chassis or something like that. So mountings are a big deal. We finally just, we've got mountings now for RCD drives, for Alston Chassis Works drives, uh, all of these strange adaptations that are being added into engines to kind of make them do what people want them to do. So... Well, I can tell you from experience, uh, we had we had John on uh, our LS build last season, our ARP LS build, and uh, we pumped out in a big inch LS, almost 700. Yeah, 684, man. Uh, dry sumped. Really? Yeah, wow. dry sumped. And uh, well, that thing came out killer. It had the AV8 setup on it. It went together so smooth. And uh, years ago, uh, this is a little inside scoop. Uh, we did a V10, all naturally aspirated, stretched Coyote with Ford for a Carroll Shelby Cobra concept car in the auto show and a GR1 concept based on the last generation Ford GT. And uh, we worked with you guys for some custom and we did an internal 
dry sump setup, integrated in the pan, uh, used a lot of your bits, man, it came out awesome. So these guys make good quality gear. So one more time, uh, the best place to catch you, we know on the web is aviaid.com. Uh, you guys Facebook as well? Just got to spell it right. Yeah, just got to spell it right. Yeah. <laughs> yep, aviaid. Yeah. Uh, you guys on Facebook as well? Yeah. No, we, we do, fa- you know, you know, you know, lots of glamour shots of engines and oil pumps and things like that. So. Hey, man, we talked about so it in the beginning. Sexy. It's sexy. sexy. That's right. <laughs> Big sexy. <laughs> oh, right. Uh, right on, man. John, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate everything you guys are bringing to the table, man. I'm sure we'll have you on a future podcast. Uh, and again, you guys, ABA.com. Find it. Check it out. See if they can help you out. Guaranteed they can. Uh, it's all about getting all the performance you can out of your ride, out of your application. And they're a great resource to do just that. So, John, thank you so much for your time, my friend. It's great having you on. Thank you, John. Thanks, Willie. Thanks, Kevin. Been real. All right, man. Take care, buddy. And don't forget about our show here on weekends on Motor Trend Network. Check your local listings. Episodes also now streaming on Motor Trend On Demand. Thanks to our guest, John Schwartz. He is the president of Aviate. My man, Kevin Bird. I'm Willie B. Our producer is Scoop. And our executive producer, Bob Ecker. Yeah, and don't forget to check out our website, twoguysgarage.com. Tons of great automotive content. And share your thoughts with us on social. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at Two Guys Garage. Two Guys Garage Podcast is a copyright 2020 Britain Productions Incorporated, all rights reserved. I tell you, not having to watch that gauge is the best feeling you can have when you're on a track. Oh, I'm just going to leave it at that. Exactly. That's all I got to say. That's a fact, dude. That is Man. a fact. Amen. <laughs> Low stress driving. <Yeah>. Hallelujah. <laughs> ABA.com, guys. We'll see you on the next podcast. Two Guys Garage Podcast is a production of iHeartRadio and Britain Productions. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.